Welcome to the podcast of Lancaster Brethren in Christ Church, located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. LBIC is a community being transformed by the love of Jesus, sharing this love with all people. We want this podcast to be an extension of our community and a connection with familiar voices. Together, we want to think about how to follow Jesus in our particular moment. So enjoy the podcast. We're grateful to have you join us as a part of the LBIC family. don't have Bibles, there's ones in the seatbacks in front of you. Um, It's something to be able to uh, receive the abundance of God in the scarcity of the world. Um, And so a lot of the times uh, we think about abundance in terms of stuff. We think about abundant things. Um, But I would also suggest maybe that it's something to receive the abundance of the peace of God in a world of violence. Uh, And so maybe uh, the juxtaposition before us this morning is not only uh, the abundance as we normally think about it, in terms of tangible things, but there's the abundance of the peace of God that we can experience uh, even in the midst of a violent world. Uh, The passages of scripture that are given to us in the lectionary this week um, talk about, uh, some of them use language of a banquet, Uh, uh, all of them have this theme of the, the goodness and the abundance of God that run through it. And uh, so this is why we'll do uh, receive communion a little differently uh, this morning. Um, But what I wanted to do to begin was to read the Isaiah 25 text uh, as kind of a precursor to getting into the book of Matthew, because this provides for us a vision. Uh, And I think a vision is something to continually keep in front of us as a people because we need it. Uh, If we don't have this kind of vision in front of us, um, the vision that we're going to get is one that is uh, distorted, kind of even sad and pathetic because it's just defined by the realities that we see around us. And so we need a vision that is given to us from beyond, and the scriptures do that, Jesus does that, the kingdom of heaven does that for us. So Brian sang about it, but Isaiah writes about it. On this mountain, this is 25, verse 6 and following. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich foods for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. Listen to this. This is beautiful. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples. The sheet that covers all nations. What's the shroud? What's the the sheet? He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. On this mountain, God will provide a feast for all peoples. And on this mountain, he will destroy the shroud. He would destroy the sheet. He will destroy death. He will swallow up death forever. And so as we turn to Matthew 22 this morning, keep this in mind. This feast, which uh, the abundance of bread in front of us this morning is representative of, this feast cannot and will not 
exist alongside of death. Or we could say death will not exist alongside of this feast. This feast, this celebration, it's a visual that is given to us of what will be. And this is what Jesus uses uh, frequently to describe the kingdom of God is a feast. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 22 and listen yet again to one of Jesus' parables. Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he said, and sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. They seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite the banquet to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to see the guests, he noticed a man there, standing there, who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. There are a number of things that are unsettling and maybe a little jarring in this passage. Um, as we met on Tuesday night as the interpretive community, here are uh, four things that we noticed that were a little unsettling about this passage of Scripture. First of all, there seems to be an A list and a B list. The people who the king really wanted to invite and then uh, the people who ended up getting invited because the first A team didn't show up. So that seems to be a little problematic. Uh, the king, who we assume represents God, <laughs> quote, destroys the murderers and burns their city, which doesn't sound very Jesus-y. Problem. Both good and bad are at the wedding feast. That's interesting. And then what's with the dude with the bad clothes? I mean, really. The fact that he's there, is that not enough, Right? He has to have the right clothes, and so um, we have that issue as well. Maybe you have some other problems or challenges that came up, but those are the ones uh, that we came up with. And we'll try throughout the morning as we look at the passage to give some perspective uh, on them, um, probably not resolving them all, but at least trying to think about them. Need to talk a bit about context, about where this falls. Um, since I think the beginning of the summer, maybe late spring, we've been in the Gospel of Matthew. It's the Gospel that's been used, uh, and the Gospel texts in the lectionary um, have all come from Matthew. And so we've been tracking with Matthew for 
for, for many, many months, which has been helpful because we kind of get the progression of the story, and, and a lot of the passages that have been given to us have been parables of Jesus. Um, where we're at, though, in the book of Matthew right now is kind of creeping towards the end, and actually this passage takes place, this speaking uh, takes place during Holy Week. And so you can kind of imagine, and, and as uh, maybe starting with when Douglas preached two weeks ago, the language of Jesus is getting more and more sharp. And it's not that it's un-Jesus-y, there's just a sense of urgency that's taking place. He knows what's about to happen uh, during the course of this week. He knows kind of what's destined and in front of, uh, of him. And so the, the urgency with which he's talking and the way that he's talking uh, is, is embodied through that sense of urgency through what he's saying. Uh, and I just want to take a small pause and, and talk about urgency and the sense of urgency for a second. Because urgency is, is um, it's a paradoxical thing within Scripture. There's always a sense of urgency, but there's also always the patience and the mercy of God. There's always an urgency to make a decision to follow Jesus, to follow the ways of God, to follow the commandments that have been laid out, to, to be obedient. There's always an urgency for that, but there's also always a sense of patience and mercy from God. There's an urgency to respond to God because responding matters. Um, we must never lessen the, necess uh, the necessity or the call for a response to God just because God is patient and we can get away with whatever it is a little longer. Responding to God is important, not so we can get on God's good side. Responding to God, God wants us to respond to him because our response is for our good. God doesn't need it, we need it. And so there's always a sense of urgency because it's, it's, it's not the sense of if you don't, then I'm going to do this to you. Sometimes we talk about God in that kind of framework where we think we must respond uh, sooner or else. The or else doesn't come from God. The or else comes from the consequences of the choices that we make in how we live. Those are natural consequences of evil. And there are also natural consequences of obedience. And so the sense of urgency that is throughout the scriptures is not because we need to earn God's favor in some way, shape, or form. It's more like God as father or mother saying, please don't go down that road. Please turn, please make the right decisions. Please live in a way that aligns with how I created things to be. And so urgency we want to pay attention to, but not so we can earn God's favor somehow, but so we can respond to the love and the mercy and the goodness of how God has designed and created us to live. And so it's about goodness, really. It's about a turn towards goodness. And this passage, uh, although it sounds sharp, is about the goodness of God. It's about a response to an invitation. Now notice here, it's a response to an invitation not a response to a threat. Again, shaping and forming how we understand our image of God. There is a response to an invitation, not a threat. 
I think this is important as we think about salvation. It's not turn here or else. It's not turn or burn. It's an invitation. And in this case, specifically an invitation to a wedding feast. We read about the wedding feast, and we read about it this morning in the prophet Isaiah in chapter 26. John's first recorded miracle of Jesus is massive amounts of wine coming out at a wedding feast from water. The imagery of a wedding feast or table fellowship is readily used and practiced by Jesus throughout his ministry. And in Revelation 19.6, we read of the marriage supper of the Lamb, this incredible feast that God is going to have with his people. And so we read here this morning, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. The invitation is to, what is it to? It's to a royal wedding banquet. Now, I'm always uh, up to making fun of myself, and so here's something you can use against me for as long as you know me. I have no idea what a royal banquet looks like. Um, but I have this memory, and I don't, it's, it's weird how you remember stuff as a kid. Um, this, this date, the date, puts me at age three when this, this occurred. I remember watching the wedding of Prince Charles and Princess Diana. This was in 1981. I don't actually remember watching it, but, uh, and I think it's because somewhere in some attic, in some box, in either my mom or my dad's house, there is a picture of me with a towel wrapped around my head and parading around the sidewalk pretending to be Diana. <laughs> Please never ask my parents for that picture, uh, but you have some new dirt on me. You can have fun with that. But if I would imagine a royal wedding banquet, I can only imagine the best of the best. The best food, the best music, flowers everywhere, celebration everywhere, joy everywhere. And so these invitations are sent out by the king. They're sent out for a wedding banquet. The setting here is one of joy and celebration and abundance and goodness. This isn't just anybody throwing a wedding. This is someone who has the resources to to throw an incredible wedding celebration. And so just a note here on the first problem of uh, what seems to be an A list and a B list. Uh, I don't think we need to read it like that. I, um, I don't think it's a prescriptive uh, sort of reading. I think it's descriptive. I think Jesus is using this as a descriptive way to describe what has happened within Israel's history. And so... Israel being the chosen A list, so to speak, um, and then the B list uh, being the other nations, um, or the uh, prophets being the servants, so to speak. And so it's something that is currently happening. The A list in this case might have been the Pharisees who should get what Jesus is doing, but don't. The A-list is historical Israel. The B-list is, uh, like Douglas preached a, a couple weeks ago, the prostitutes and the tax collectors, the people who shouldn't be getting it but are, are getting it. Um, or even as Matthew is writing this kind of in retrospect to a Jewish audience, um, the B-list might include the, the Gentiles. So these aren't categories of in and out, and this is often how we think in terms of uh, sometimes in, in religious circles of who's in and who's out. 
Um, the intention of choosing Israel wasn't for the sake of Israel just being in. It was for the sake of Israel being a mechanism or a people through whom which everyone else would also come in. And so uh, if you imagine a banquet that Israel was going to have with God, so to speak, they were supposed to be the messengers that would go out and give the invitation. Um, they would be a conduit for all nations to be in. In your bulletin, I put something uh, that I just think is a helpful clarification. When, when you think of chosenness or inness in the scriptures, it's never exclusive in God's kingdom. Inness or chosenness is always for the purpose of hospitality and welcoming others into joining in what God is doing. Okay? So chosenness isn't just because these people are special. They're special because they're chosen, but they're chosen for a purpose, and that purpose is to welcome others into what God is doing. So let's look at the different kinds of responses then to the invitation. And remember as we do this, what the invitation is to, it's to a banquet, an incredible banquet. So how folks respond? Here we go. A few different kinds of responses. In verse three, the first group simply refuses to come. We don't get any reason why, it's just simply refusal. And so the king doesn't take no for an answer. The king follows it up with a second invitation, telling them uh, a bit of what's on the menu, which for me would be a ribeye steak, medium rare, followed by a tuna steak with some scallops wrapped in bacon. Um, completed with a fruit pie, but nothing that has rhubarb in it because that's sinful. <laughs> rhubarb does not belong in pies. That is in the Bible. Handwritten in my version, right? So maybe the bacon's probably not there at this particular feast, but the, the, point, being, the point being is this feast is prepared with the best of things. Their response, well, they're just kind of dismissive. One goes to work, the other goes back to business, to his field. They have their life priorities and they, they don't have time to take part in what this king's invitation or is inviting them to. So you have this kind of passive, just no thanks, don't need it kind of response. And then there's this other group that doesn't just say no, but they react violently against this invitation and kill the messengers. And so this is symbolic, again, of the prophets and a foreshadowing of what they're going to do in just a couple days to Jesus. What's interesting to me is that rebellion against the king, if you think about that conceptually, is mutiny. Um, it's not just rebelling against the king, it's rebelling against the ruler. These are his subjects, the king's subjects. They're not just ignoring an invitation, but they're rebelling against the king and the ways of the king and the rule of the king. And so you see here this juxtaposition and this massive contrast between the king that is incredibly generous and these people who are, are bent and hell-bent on death and violence. So we had a problem in verse seven at least I kind of have a problem with verse 7, which says this, the king was enraged, and so he sent his army and destroyed those murders and burned their city. I'm not sure if I can resolve this for us, um, but here's how I'm thinking about it anyway. 
Going back to the verses in Isaiah, on God's mountain there will be a feast for all nations, and what will be absent on that mountain is death. Death will not endure. And so you have feast, and death will not be present alongside the feast or alongside God's kingdom. God puts death to death. And those who choose the way of death quite literally choose death. Because God will not allow death to endure in God's kingdom. And if you think back to the creation story, this is what's happening with Adam and Eve. Once, you, uh, once Adam and Eve rebel against God, uh, against trusting God, against obedience to God, God escorts them out. And I say escorts because God continues to walk with them out of the garden. That is our story. God walks with us out of Eden in order to guide us back into Eden. But uh, what, what the writer of Genesis says is and gives us this picture of uh, I think God says something effective. They can't eat of the tree of life, which will give them eternal life, in this kind of state of death, because death cannot be something that lasts eternally. And so God can't have them eat of the tree of life and live forever in this state of death that results from choosing their own way. God puts death to death. And like we see here, those who choose the reign and the rule of death go the way of death. So I'm not so sure as um, if it's like the king going out and there's specific people uh, that the king's going after in so much as God is going to, at some point, destroy death and all the mechanisms of death because it cannot exist eternally alongside his banquet and his kingdom and life. So I don't know if that messes with your paradigms or not, um, but let's uh, mess with a few more maybe. One of the problems we named in the beginning was both the presence of good and bad people at the wedding feast. I don't know what you consider good or bad people to be, but I'm sure you can imagine your own standards of good and bad people. I'll just go ahead and group myself in the bad people because I know I'm not altogether good all the time. And probably one of the things that would be good for us to do is say that eh, we're probably a little bit of both. But there are good and bad people at the wedding feast. And there's a differentiation then between good and bad people and those who choose death, those who fight back against the king. So wouldn't it be uh, true then that the bad people would be the same as those who, who killed the king's servants? What's the difference between these two? The difference is this. The bad people who show up to the feast respond positively to the invitation. They actually show up. They do not have a right to be there. Not if the right depends on being good. But clearly it doesn't matter, because they're there, right? So do they have a right to be there? No. But yes, they do, because the right doesn't depend on whether they are good or bad, but the right depends on the fact that they've been given an invitation and that they've responded to the invitation. Because, friends, it's all grace. It's all grace. They don't need to do anything to earn their way there. They've got nothing to show except 
when they get to the door, the personal invite that has been given to them by the king, good, bad, doesn't matter, they've been invited and they are saying yes to the invitation. They're not rebelling against it, they're not killing the messenger, they are saying yes to the invitation. They respond positively to the utter grace of the king. And that grace, friends, is what puts them on the dance floor alongside the good. Christians are notorious about categorizing people into good and bad. But I think the most uh, mature Christian is very aware of his or own, her own badness. It's the ones who are afraid to look in the mirror that create such categories of good and bad and in and out. But in this party, at this invitation, in this party that the king's throwing, there are no categories. It's not good and bad because they are both there. It's whether they respond to the invitation or not. Friends, getting in, showing up to this party, does not involve a moral test. Let me say that again. Getting into this party, responding to the wedding banquet of the king does not include a moral test. Getting in is simply responding to the invitation of a generous God whose invitation is to all and whose rule is generous and whose kingdom is like a feast. Now, for those of you who might be disturbed, does this mean that morals don't matter? No, that's not what I'm saying whatsoever. Does this mean that obedience to God's commands don't matter? No, that's also not what I'm saying. But yes, it is what I'm saying, because morals and obedience do not matter if you are focusing on them for the sake of merit. Morals and obedience do not matter if you are doing those things in order to earn your way to God. God will have none of it. It's all grace. Obedience is the continued aligning of our lives with God because of the way God created, designed, and desires things to be. Again, responding to God is important. The yes to morals, the yes to obedience is because it's for our own good. It's not so we can pay the entry fee. Some people are afraid that if you throw obedience out the window as a way to earn your way to God, that the end result will just be indulging in sin and doing whatever you want to anyway. In other words, they're afraid of the implications of utter and pure grace. They also, I would suggest, don't know God in the way that God wants to be known. We don't not sin or or. or, or we don't take advantage of, of the utter grace of God and, and just do whatever we want to. Like the implications we often think is if God is so gracious, oh my God, then people will just do whatever they want to. This world will be this just joyous sin party. And we neglect the fact that actually following Jesus for the sake of following Jesus, for living is the way Jesus designed and created us to live, in and of itself is good. Like, it's a good life. It creates a good soul. A mind that's at peace. A heart that's at rest. I'm, I'm fine to go on grace. Because I, I, I think there's more reasons to bank on grace than... than be, 
than just because we're afraid that people are going to just indulge in sin, as if that's going to be the automatic default. Now, is it the automatic default? I don't know. But there's a lot more reasons to follow Jesus than just to get out of hell. So many reasons. And that's because our life now matters. That's why there's an urgency now to live for Jesus now, because it matters. Obedience matters, because that is what brings about the good life. We don't obey to earn. We obey to receive. We don't obey to earn. We obey to receive God and God's goodness. Okay, last problem. What about the dude with weird clothes? Uh, There's some historical context that gives us a little bit of help here. When you went to a royal wedding, um, it was the tradition that the host, the king in this case, would give you wedding clothes to put on. So everyone who entered, however you showed up, even if you showed up in your finest doodads, I haven't said doodads in a long time, but if you showed up in your finest clothes, you would take the clothes that the king gave you or the host would give you, and you would put them on in order to participate. So it's not that the person didn't have the right clothes, but he didn't put on the clothes that were given to him or her. In other words, even though they responded to the invitation, they didn't join in the party. Let that sink in for a bit. Even though they joined, they, they, responded to the invitation, they refused to join in the party. He might have looked around and he might have, as, as the, the passage Douglas preached on the other week, he might, they might have said, that's, that's the neighborhood prostitute over there. What the world is she doing here? That's the dude that killed his brother. What's he doing here? He's like, I'm, not, I'll, I'm here, but I'm not here. I don't know, whatever it is, but there is a refusal to join in the celebration. And that's what gets him tossed. It's not the clothes. The clothes are just symbolic. It is a refusal to engage in what will be the generosity, the goodness, the celebration, the banquet that is the kingdom of God. This is kind of the warning to us through this person. Some people have the expectation that the kingdom of God forever and ever will be a dirge. No, it's going to be a celebration. It's going to be life. And if you can't accept the utter graciousness of the king, you might not even want to be there. Isn't that weird? And you might be good. What if you're good and you just don't like grace very much? Seriously. What if you're a good Christian and you just don't know what to do with this incredible wave of grace that God gives everybody, you might not actually want to show up at the king's party either, or you might show up and be like, heck no, this ain't for me. And so these standards of in and out have have less to do with our response to the question and all to do with our response to the person. It is not only believing in Jesus, it is believing and wanting to enter into the kingdom that Jesus brings.
which is abundant and generous and full, full, full of grace. And so Jesus describes it this way, many are invited, but few are chosen. And we see the many in the parable, and we can extrapolate this out to all humanity, I think, whoever was or whoever will be, right? God wants everybody to come. God wills that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And from the famous of all verses, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him won't perish. Whoever believes in this king and his son and this banquet we're invited to will not perish but have eternal life. We might say it this way, God chooses all but not all choose God. God chooses all but not all choose God. Why? John writes this, in John chapter 3, verse 20, everyone who, who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. For fear that their deeds will be exposed. We look around at the world around us, especially now, and we see people absolutely in love with death. In love with death. There are people for reasons that are beyond my understanding who have no interest in the reign and the rule of the kingdom of heaven ruled by King Jesus. They have no interest in a generous or a loving God or in a kingdom that is based on a rule of abundance and kindness and goodness and love. I cannot fathom why that is the case, but it is true. But on the other hand, I can fathom why it's true, because in order to come into this banquet, in order to come into this light, there is a kind of exposure that happens. John says they are afraid of being exposed. I would say we are afraid of being known for who we are. We are afraid to be vulnerable. We are afraid in the Genesis language of being naked. Because when you are that vulnerable, when it's all pure grace and you can't bring anything to the table, when it's all grace, you are so incredibly vulnerable and you are dependent upon the other person or party. The people who are showing up to this feast are altogether dependent on the fact that this king is good and this king is going to take care of them. And it takes a work of the heart to allow our hearts to be exposed before God. And to say before God, I can't bring anything to this table. I'm just, I'm banking on the fact that you're going to accept me. Good and bad, because that's who you are. The good and the bad on the dance floor of the kingdom have answered the invitation of the king, and they've accepted it as pure gift. No amount of earning got them there. They can only open themselves up to receive the goodness of the king in the midst of their badness. Like Adam and Eve, they can only show up naked and put on Christ. That kind of vulnerability is good news, but 
maybe to a few, and it's scary as hell for the rest of us, isn't it? To be found naked and vulnerable before God. And so they run away, apart from God. Robert Capone, in his book, Kingdom, Grace, and Judgment, says this, Hell is simply the nowhere that is the only thing left for those who will not accept their acceptance by grace. You can sit with that one for the rest of the week. So the table before us this morning uh, has been prepared in a different way. Representative of a wedding feast. Friends, every, every week I say before we receive communion that we practice an open table because we believe that Jesus invites everybody. And yes, especially in response to this week's passage. We believe that this invitation goes out and this invitation is, is abundant. And what is given here is abundant. The life that God gives us is abundant. Rowan Williams writes about communion. He says, we take holy communion not because we are doing well, not because we're good, but because we are doing badly. Not because we have arrived, but because we are traveling. Not because we're right, but because we are confused and wrong. Not because we're divine, but because we're human. Not because we're full, but because we're hungry. So friends, as we approach to receive from the communion table here this morning, good and bad are welcomed. Good and bad are welcomed. You aren't given this gift because of merit. It is simply because it is God's heart to share it with you. It's the acceptance of this invitation. It's putting on the clothes that welcomes you to the feast of communion with God. And so approaching this table each and every week is something that we do with humility and absolute joy. It's humility because we're exposed and because it's all grace, friends. That's it. It's all grace. You're not bringing anything here except that you are a loved son or daughter of God. That's it. The only thing that you're bringing is your response to receive. And so we're going to uh, experience communion a little differently uh, this morning. There will be cups of juice on my right and my left. Um, it's easier to do a lot of bread than it is a lot of juice. So we're going with the a lot of bread. Um, but uh, the cups will be on either side, and there will be servers on either side. And um, there are, there's, there's just a lot of bread. Um, and there's different kinds of bread. There's baguettes, there's a country loaf, there's some grain thing looking thing going on, and there's gluten-free uh, for those of you who need it. Um, so there's a lot of bread. If, if you want to, take the whole half that isn't even broken and just sit there and eat for a while. I, I don't care. Um, but the point is, this, this is abundant. Like The, the grace that God gives us is abundant, and he gives it because that's, that's just who God is. 
And you don't have to bring anything except yourself. 